giant pools of water um, as you went up on this terribly steep grade and having to circumvent that um, and take many leaps of faith. And then once you got to the top, it's just like this huge slope that you're walking on for miles. And when I finally got down from that mountain, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Which is funny because I'd gained so much confidence on the Appalachian Trail because, you know, even going up to Totten, as someone who's scared of heights, I found it like very rigorous and challenging. But these sandy, steep slopes in Israel and through these canyons. Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, and you've probably noticed that the format of this podcast has changed from its original heavier focus on gear to a greater emphasis on stories and experiences. And today's guest is Abstract, known off-trail as Alina Drufolka. She had been dreaming about hiking the AT since she was 13. Finally, in 2015, she loaded up her pack and set out, getting halfway before injury forced her off. Not to be denied, she went back to the beginning in 2017 and hiked the full trail, launching herself into the thru-hiking life. 200 miles on the Israel National Trail and 1,800 miles on the PCT brought her to an existential crisis over who she was outside of thru-hiking. In this episode, we talk about identity, in and out of hiking, fear, letting go of the purest ideology, and the evolution of her art. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Abstract. So welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. Thanks for having me, Erin. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for putting some beautiful art out there into the through hiking world. You're welcome. Yeah, not what I ever expected to do with life was paint hikers, but here I am. <laughs> how did your artwork, how did your art evolve to that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So basically, my boyfriend and I, we were stuck in Costa Rica at the start of the pandemic. So we were just there for vacation for a few weeks. And then all of a sudden, one day, COVID hit the world and all outgoing flights were canceled. And we were waiting for government repatriation flight. And we had no idea when that would be, like potentially even months. Um, and everything was shut down in Costa Rica. They were taking it way more seriously than the United States. So all the national parks were immediately shut down, all the beaches, all the hot springs. So basically, we had nothing to do. I mean, you went to a public park there, and even that, there would be caution tape around benches. So yeah, I was just hanging out, not sure what to do. So I, of course, started painting, because that's what I've always done with my free time. And I was actually started by making these kind of abstract jungle nudes. And a trail angel from when I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail asked about purchasing the painting I made. And since I didn't know when I would be coming back to the United States, I said, well, let me look into making prints. I don't know if I can even ship things from Costa Rica. And through the process of making a print for them, I started Googling and seeing what kind of thru-hiker specific art was out there. And I basically found nothing. And especially with all these thru-hiker terms like hiker trash and banana blazer, (laughs) I was like, how does this not exist? How has no one made like 
you know, I'm not a graphic designer, but I assumed that there would be like quirky little graphic designs of this kind of thing out there. And so I just started making it. Yeah, I think the only graphic or art that I've seen through Hiker Wise is really Poppins. Yeah. I think that's exactly. pretty much it. And I hadn't even found her account at that page. I don't think I had really dived into the Instagram world. I was just looking on like the major print sites like Etsy and Redbubble. Okay. And yeah. Yeah, because I, I obviously I, I researched for this for this episode and and really dug into your your artwork and and stuff. But I do remember vividly seeing the like probably the first one that I saw was the one you did of Tip Tap. Okay, for the my cooler design. Yeah, basically. Okay, yeah. So the silhouette series again was totally random. I wanted to teach my boyfriend how to make a piece of art. And so the whole silhouette <laughs> idea was kind of like making him a coloring book and him filling it in. And so I just took, you know, like this basic hiker outline I found on Google and filled it in with some PCT images like cactus and mountains and had him fill it in with color. And I really liked how it turned out. And then that just turned into this whole silhouette series of hikers. And then, yeah, it just turned into commissions from there. Someone I knew from the Appalachian Trail reached out to me about doing commission of her 15 person trail family. Which <laughs> now if someone asked me to do that, I'd be like, Oh, that's quite the undertaking. Let me think about it. But at the time I was like, of course I want to paint your trail journey. And yeah, I just remember staying up all night painting each person. She had sent me this giant Google doc with information about each person, you know, their preferences, like little quirky things about them and trying to incorporate all of that into a single nine by 12 page was quite the challenge, but that really like opened this idea of, Oh, I can make custom art for hikers. Yeah. So are you, when you make those silhouettes, are you talking to the person or like what this uh, person did sending you sort of uh, snippets of their experience and moments on the trail that you're then incorporating or are they a little bit more, shall we call them, abstract than that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just leave it completely up to the person. Like if okay. someone wants to send me an 100-page Google Doc with information <laughs> about their whole trail story, to be honest, like I'm going to dive into it and try to do justice to that. But I also have tons of people like the commission I'm working on right now. You know, he just told me, do whatever you want. And they don't even send me the photos. Like I just go through their Instagram and piece something together. And honestly, sometimes I think those come out best, like when I have complete artistic freedom, but it is also really fun and a way to help me narrow down in my artistic process when people give me specifics. They're like, I want this tree here, this flower. Um, oh, man. Yeah, but I, I like both. I like having complete artistic freedom and I like having some direction. And especially when I have the direction, it you know, helps me explore things I would have never thought of incorporating in a painting like jellyfish in the sky for example yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah which was um alluding to the string cheese incident band <laughs> the string cheese incident i love it yeah i think that's the name of it oh my gosh so basically then i get because i guess doing if you were if you were just limited to what somebody posted on instagram or what somebody posted mm -hmm. you know that that's gonna tell you a lot about somebody because it tells you, you know, what they are posting. It may not necessarily show you all of their bad moments, but 
No, I think you're totally right. And sometimes it's like subconscious. Like I don't even realize it. Like I was doing a commission of someone's significant other recently and I had incorporated a butterfly and a certain, a certain kind of star, for example. And then after I did the piece, I saw in their Instagram bio that all their emojis that they had put were in my painting, like a butterfly, a star, a certain mountain. And so you actually really can extract so much information just from someone's Instagram of who they are, or at least who they present themselves to be. Right. And it's funny what your artistic mind picks up on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I said, some of just subconscious, I don't even realize I'm picking up on it or picking up on the color scheme or palette of their Instagram until after. Well, and you also did one for yourself. Probably. <laughs> I do a lot of art for myself. I mean, most of the pieces that aren't commissions, I'm working from photos I have of myself. So yeah, mm-hmm. one of the first silhouettes I did was of myself. And then I'm still working on, you know, what I call a portal painting of myself that I ended up manically at 2am cutting into pieces and trying to make it three dimensional. But that, <laughs> that's still a work in progress. Yeah, because I'm looking at basically you call it Hiker Gal, which was okay, a yep. portrait of 1800 mile journey on the PCT. Now, why did you choose just the PCT to represent with this versus all of the different, you know, the AT and the Israel National Trail? To also yeah. Well, I just happened to have like the best like silhouette photo of myself from the PCT. But I think from an artistic standpoint, I love painting the PCT just because of how varied the climate is and that contrast between the desert and high Sierra and the really greens of Washington. So I think there's because of that, like diversity of landscape, it's more visually striking and appealing to me than the Appalachian Trail, even though the Appalachian Trail totally has my heart. And that's my favorite (laughs) trail I've ever hiked. (laughs) Right. The the PCT, you seem to have a little bit of a love hate with it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I hiked it in a really hard snow year. And I think I don't know, this is kind of weird to say, but I feel like through the PCT, I started falling out of love with through hiking, which I hate to talk negatively, but I think that's when I started having more like existential angst of like, who am I beyond a through hiker? Like, what do I want to do with life? And at that point, I felt like I was in my comfort zone of just hiking the next trail, you know, working really hard for six months and then planning this next adventure. And I started to crave stability and craving something else. Was that a hard process to come to or a hard realization to come to? Yeah, just because so much of my identity formation since the time I was 13 years old and first found the Appalachian Trail has been about through hiking and being a through hiker and you know, even when I'm traveling places where I'm not even planning a hiking trip, you know, people reach out to me and be like, oh, what are you hiking these days? Or people just assume I'm on a hiking trip anytime I do anything. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I obviously I still love nature. I still love hiking. But this walk for thousands of miles for six months at a time thing is something that, yeah, I have fallen out of love with and I mean I think for the PCT as well like it was so visually beautiful like I loved 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 Washington um but the culture was just so different than the Appalachian Trail and what I had fallen in love with with through hiking was very much the culture of the people and the community and the tradition around the trail which the PCT was very different how so 
Well, it could just be because it was such a hard snow year that people were flipping and flopping. But I mm -hmm. think it's also because you don't have the shelters like you have on the Appalachian Trail. And so people aren't all gathering at the same place every day, which I think just creates community really quickly on the AT versus the Pacific Crest Trail. And I'm also not someone that likes getting up early. And I just found that the culture of the PCT, especially because of the desert section, people were getting up for 5 a.m. and hiking and hiking way bigger miles than the AT. And so it wasn't like everyone stopping to camp at 5, 6 p.m. and hanging out by a campfire every night. Did you do the night hike across the aqueduct? I did. I didn't, I didn't go all night, but till like 3 a.m., um, my boyfriend and I, we stopped a bit short, but we did most of it at night. How was that? It was good. I mean, I think I would have been scared if there weren't so many other hikers around doing it. Um, it was very interesting because I, I have a feeling this is a pretty uncensored podcast. So I'm just going to talk very candidly. <laughs> yes, please. Um, yeah, but a lot of people, I was not, but a lot of people were tripping acid the night that I did it. And so it was pretty fun just like setting up camp and like seeing all these hikers who I knew were like hallucinating coming through and just having a good time looking at the stars. And it was pretty wild. It was sort of the take advantage of this really unique opportunity, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like I was surprised so many people would want to hallucinate like at night during a pretty monotonous section of trail. But, you know, more power to them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find yourself now having come to these conclusions, come to these understandings of yourself, you know, through the PCT, but still wanting to hike? Do you find yourself now gravitating more towards section hiking or shorter trails, trails that can be done in like a month or two, maybe? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I mean, obviously, with like COVID, everything's just been yeah. put to a halt. Um, I was really lucky this summer. My boyfriend and I ended up accidentally van lifing. So we got to explore a lot of national parks and do a lot of hiking. And honestly, the whole van lifing thing, like it's not what I want to do right now, but I really love just driving up to a beautiful place, place and just being still in nature. I think from through hiking, the mentality was always go, 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 go. And Obviously, that's also part of this bigger physical challenge, which I really enjoyed. But at this point, like, I just really found that I like being still in nature occasionally mm -hmm. um, rather than doing these big trips. But I definitely would still love to do the Camino. And I heard of the Via Alpino, I think it's called. But there's tons of trails in Europe I would like to do one day. And from what I understand, those trails those hikes are a little different than the states which which in the states is a little bit more roughing it yeah i've heard that too like a lot of europeans say they come to america to do what they call wild camping because <laughs> they can't do it here but i don't know i mean right now i'm just really enjoying painting hiking rather than doing all the hiking you're you're living close enough to the hiking that way yeah, I'm vicariously hiking through all the people I paint, I'd say. Yeah. Well, and I guess it's also to to preface all of this, you first got on the Appalachian Trail when you were when you were younger, but to do a through hike, you first got on the Appalachian Trail in 2015. 
Yeah, exactly. I hiked the first half and got injured in 2015. Right. And then I went back to do it all over again, or at least try to, which I did end up doing it in 2017. Exactly, exactly. And, and I guess, the reason that I'm prefacing it specifically <gasps> and saying, like, in 2015, you got on and you got injured. Uh, well, I guess, did, let's jump into like, what was the injury? And what do you think caused it? Yeah, so it was bone contusions in both my knees. And from my understanding, that is the step before a fracture. So it's kind of like a bruise, but it will evolve into a fracture. And yeah, go ahead. So it's like a deep bruise? Yeah, I think so. I feel like I should like Google this real quick. No, no worries. But I guess I'm trying to understand like how that becomes a fracture and, and sort of like what it's in your knee. So is it basically the two sides of your knee pounding against each other, essentially? Yeah, I think it's like really small, like micro almost fractures, if that makes sense. Because I know I had a bunch of them. Like when they pulled up um, the MRI, it was like in five different places. Yeah, which it's really weird because I didn't feel any pain until like I woke up one day and couldn't walk, essentially, which was really surprising. But I definitely think what caused it was just overuse, carrying a heavy pack and ultimately having a time frame of which I had to finish the trail at the time I was still in college. So I had to be back by late August to be in school. And so I was constantly trying to average above 20 miles a day. I'm a pretty small, short woman. So I think that was just too much for my body. And I was so blinded by the dream of through hiking that I don't think I was listening to my body. I also was hiking with five other people that I'd met on trail and just that group mentality it's like you want to stay with the group that's where you feel safe and yeah you just don't really have time to really overthink you know how your body feels until it's kind of too late sometimes yeah it I feel like that is the eternal question that is the eternal struggle <laughs> of ev- pretty much every through hiker <laughs> yeah I think a lot of it has to be with being a woman for me I think If I wasn't a woman, I don't think I would have. Like, I loved the people I hiked with, and that was a huge part of my experience. I still keep up with them. But I don't think I would have felt so tied to the group if I didn't feel that I was safer hiking with the group. I guess to to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I certainly get, like, when you first start out, and because there's a lot of fears and uh, particularly for you and your family uh, yeah. of stepping onto the trail and being there by yourself and being a single woman or a solo woman and all of the the fears and the fear mongering that can happen from people who don't hike and people who do hike and <laughs> all of it everywhere coming at you. But was there any point in time during that first 2015 hike where you were kind of like, okay, I got this. I feel good. I know what this space is. And I don't need to tie myself to a specific group in order to feel that safety. Honestly, I don't think I got there till 2017. I mean, when I was 20, in 2015, I was only 20 years old. I mean, I started the trial. I had taken a self-defense class. I was wearing only men's hiking clothes. Like I'm a very feminine woman, like how I present but I was only wearing men's hiking clothes in the beginning. Like I totally did not feel confident in that space, but 
I think I probably grew up with more of an extreme fear mongering of what it means to be a woman than your average person. Like, I think women get that a lot, but I think the family I grew up in, like my mom, my grandma, like the extreme, like, you know, I grew up in a safe area of Philadelphia. Yes, it's a major city, but even so, like I was just constantly being told I wasn't allowed to walk even in my hometown more than five blocks in one direction. So this was like totally out of everyone's comfort zone. (laughs) Um, I mean, my mom at the time, she literally wanted to pay my boyfriend to continue hiking with me. And I was like, you cannot do that (laughs) because she was just so terrified. Um, But that was a huge reason why I wanted to go back in 2017 beyond like just the dream of through hiking. It's just like I knew I needed to develop that confidence and I knew it was absurd that I hadn't. And, you know, from that experience in 2015, I knew that the majority of people were good people. But still, I mean, even hiking with a group of mostly men, I still had people make advances at me and make me uncomfortable, even when I was surrounded by a group of five other people. So... I don't know. I decided that was just going to be part of it. And I was willing to overcome it. You felt that in order to grow into yourself, I guess, maybe you needed to overcome it. Definitely. I mean, I, I just wanted to know what it was like to camp alone and beyond know what it was like, feel confident in it. And what was it like? <laughs> it, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because I... When I went back in 2017, which and we can get into this topic later, but obviously I met my now partner, but right. he was only hiking the first half of the trail. So the second half, I was still hiking solo and I was around people. But it wasn't until I think New Hampshire or Maine that I actually camped alone. And it was actually kind of terrifying because I had put a hiking pole up and up against this rock right near my tent, both my hiking poles and went to sleep. And when I woke up the next day, my hiking poles were placed on another rock, like 20 feet away, but like placed in a way like a human had placed it, not like the wind had blown it. And so that really creeped me out. Um, but I found out a week later, like what had happened. And it was actually these, um, this couple, this two guys who had walked through and they had seen um, that my pole had just like fallen from the wind and they just like wanted to place it somewhere, but not too close to my tent because they didn't want to startle me. But for a whole week, I was like, was it paranormal activity? Like, what happened? (laughs) But what I remember most from 2017 are definitely the moments I was alone. So I am really happy I did it. What does that mean for you when you say that you most remember that, that are most meaningful for you? I guess it's just what stands out in my mind. I mean, obviously, I'm sure part of that was just the adrenaline of it. I also ended up having to night hike alone, which was pretty scary. But I don't know. It just gave me so much confidence that I know in any situation now that I'm alone, that I'll be okay. whether that's night hiking or camping alone. And I just feel like that confidence trickles down into so many other facets of life. Well, it also sounds like that confidence trickled into the rest of the women in your family, too. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? Well, like, I guess getting back to the three cell phones. Like yeah. your mom was so freaked out about you doing this that she insisted you cover you, that you carry three cell phones from different carriers so that you would quote unquote always have service and always be able to contact and mm-hmm. you know it's your mom it's your grandmother I don't know if you have aunts and cousins and sisters yeah I have an aunt too <laughs> you know 
but I'm sure that that feeling kind of pervaded everybody. And through you doing this, I think you were talking about it in your Instagram, that through you doing this, like your mom is now sort of a trail angel, but, but she's, but she's gung ho through hiking. You know what I mean? She's gung ho you going out and exploring in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason she's such a cheerleader now, obviously is because I have a significant other that I'm doing this with. But beyond that, it's like, she still gives me a hard time when I'm home in Philly about, you know, just when I tell her I'm going to a friend's house in the evening, she's like, well, how are you getting there? Are you walking? Like that whole thing. But I think now, like, yes, she still gives me a hard time. But at the end, she can kind of laugh it off and know that I'll be okay and that I can take care of myself. Even though, like, yeah, of course, she still has that mother's worry and anxiety. But yeah, I think she's come a long way. And I think she also just has come to a place of acceptance that I'm my own person. And you know, I'm 26 years old, I'm going to make my own life decisions at this point, And she needs to find ways to emotionally cope with that. And I think she has. Oh, the, the fun, uh, the fun ev- evolution of mothers and daughters. <laughs> Do you have any kids? I don't. I don't. How does your mother feel about your adventures? Well, uh, to be completely uh, transparent, mm-hmm. my mother, as I was growing up, would uh, leave home for six months of the year to go shear sheep in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. Okay, so, that's me. <laughs> yeah, but so that was sort of my, I guess, uh, memories of Ooh. of what a mother, a woman could do. You know, okay. she, she would do this. Uh, she did this for many years, actually. Uh, where you know, go out and work with the New Zealand primarily New Zealand sheep crews, sheep shearing crews from probably like January to June. In Washington state, Washington, Oregon and Northern California. Yeah. But they, you said they were New Zealand crews. Yeah. New Zealand crews would come over and uh, shear and not to, to digress too much, but but there are, there are specific shearing techniques that are, that are specific to New Zealand, Australian and so forth. And for whatever reason, she hooked up with a crew of New Zealanders. And so she would pretty routinely work with these same people uh, each year or the same crew. But you grew up in California, Washington, Washington. Okay, that makes a bit more sense. Yeah, no, I grew (laughs) up on a on a uh, sheep farm. That's cool. (laughs) Because she wanted to uh, uh, spin and weave. So So do you shear sheep? I do not, but I, but I sometimes, uh, or particularly when I was younger, when I, when I was seeing it a lot more, I would think that I could do it in my sleep because I had seen it done so many <laughs> times. <laughs> That's super cool. But it's so interesting, you know, when you talk about, like, I was supposed to be on the PCT this year and yep. it didn't happen for, for COVID reasons. But, and I, and I, admit that there was a lot of fear, anxiety, angst about doing it on multiple different levels, even with knowing that my mom, when I was growing up, would mm. would go out for six months of the year, live out of a of a small pickup truck and work with these crews and shear and that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you think your biggest fear was? <sighs> um, <laughs> I think the two biggest fears were... I get out there and I don't like it. And oh shit, I've basically turned down all this work. And you know what now? Yeah. 
Um, and then the other fear probably was sort of what you were talking about that first time when you were camping alone on the AT. And it's sort of like, oh, God, what's out there in the dark? What's Ooh. out there? Forgot for that matter, what's out there in the light? Um, yeah. And I have to find out like 10 times every night because I have to pee so much. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. And and somehow we feel that the the tent that little slight <laughs> material of cloth. yeah it's going to protect us yeah no it is funny and I guess ignorance is bliss yeah I, I'm definitely more scared of people than animals but true mountain lions are scary too <laughs> yeah mountain lions particularly mountain lions if they're stalking you yes <laughs> I guess going back to your the comment that you just made about people being more scary than animals. Which is probably part of, like, when you saw your poles moved, mm. it's part of what was freaking you out the most because somebody was around your tent while you were sleeping, exactly. you know, who knows? Moving my stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the intention was good, you know, that was what was great about actually finding out a week yeah. later who had moved it, what had happened. It wasn't someone just fucking with me. True. Did that help? Did you ever... Uh, slow, solo camp again? I think I did one other time. I mean, on the Appalachian Trail, again, it's kind of hard to solo camp. There's so many people and just where the shelters are located for ease of like water and having a bathroom, it just makes sense to camp there. Uh, but a lot of times I would set up earlier and there would be no one there and I would have to confront the possibility that no one would show up. And, you know, once you go through setting up the tent and filtering water and setting up your whole camp for the night, like you're not going to move. So there was a lot of times where people did end up showing up, but it wasn't until way later and there was hours that I was just there alone, not knowing. And did it get any easier? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think hiking alone, too, got a lot easier. I mean, up in Maine, because the trail definitely, like, thinned out by the time I got that far north, and I was really taking my time, so I was still on the AT in late September. So I would go a day or two without seeing anyone, which was really novel, but I, I liked it. It was it was very quiet. You kind of feel like you're going insane in your head, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm glad I had that experience to know what it's like to just I kind of imagine like people who do those silent retreats at ashrams. It kind of felt like that. It was just you and your thoughts. And and a lot of podcasts. And a lot of podcasts. <laughs> it's, so, it's so strange being on podcasts now because I've spent so much time on trail and that was like the main source of media I was consuming. And it's very strange like being on the other end of it. Does it ever make you think that somebody on another trail will be listening to you talk about your experiences well now that you mention it yes it's like the coolest thing in the world I mean like I, said, I was super nervous before the she explores interview because I've been listening to that podcast for years like I remember listening to a podcast about the AT when I was on the AT in 2015 so so many things like now that I am pursuing this career that's very much within this through hiker world have come full circle like I found out about Cooler Cloth and using that product on the PCT. And then it's like, oh, now I have one with my design. And I don't know. It's just like really amazing how full circle it is. How did the Cooler Cloth thing come? Like, had they seen your art or did you reach out to them or? 
I reached out to them. They were the first company I reached out to. And I don't think I, I remember I didn't even have a website at that point. So I remember sending them the email. I'm like, shit, I have to make a website real quick. <laughs> um, but I was posting a lot on Reddit when I first started. And someone suggested in the comments, they're like, oh, Cooler Cloth's having a design competition. Like, you should enter. Your art would really fit. And then I went on their Instagram and saw that the competition had already ended and they had already announced a winner. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to send them an email anyways. And I ha I've worked in nails before, so I, I'm very persistent. And if there's an opportunity I'm interested in, I, I really, really firmly believe that the worst anyone can say is no. So I'm definitely not scared to send a message or email to any company, even if I think, you know, it's way out of my professional league. Um, so, I, yeah, I just sent them a message telling them about myself. And, yeah, they were totally on board for me to design a cola. So basically, the silhouette of TipTap came out of that. It wasn't something that you had previously, that you had previously, and then used. No, it made it specifically okay. for Kula. So that's why that design actually has a Kula on the design within the silhouette. Got if it. If you look close. Um, and I was just looking through different hikers' Instagram to see if there was any photos that sparked my imagination for the design. And I just loved that photo of her with the ice axe and thought it was super badass. Agreed. Completely agreed. Have, have you watched any of her videos? Yes. Yeah. So I, totally <laughs> and so I watched her um, It's the People video and that mm -hmm. just, obviously I didn't find that community on the PCT, but I definitely did on the AT and that just really resonated with me and gave me all the feels and trail nostalgia. So it was really cool to be able to incorporate her in the design because I really appreciate what she's doing creatively. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's pretty amazing. But it also makes me like now looking back for you, there were a lot of interesting, cool people on the PCT in 2019. And obviously that was a very difficult year Yeah, for everybody. Course. But does it make you think about not necessarily just the PCT specifically, but does it make you think about the ways in which we form communities and the ways in which we can find communities within yeah, I mean, community, you know, just that buzzword is probably the most important thing to me in life. Um, before, you know, I hiked the trail, I'd spent some time on, you know, whatever you want to call it, communes, intentional communities. And that was like this huge point of interest for me. And growing up in Philadelphia, I felt like I did have this kind of like traditional hyper individualized upbringing. And community, like, yeah, my family had friends, but I didn't feel like I was part of this bigger community. And it was something that I really wanted to recreate. Well, not recreate because I didn't have it, but create it in my life. And so that's why I had this interest in communes. And then, you know, I found a lot of community on the AT. And even now in my adult life, uh, that's something that I'm really striving to find and find where I want to live that has that. And that has been the hardest part of COVID, obviously is not having that. And I think yeah. this whole art thing that's come out of COVID for me, the most amazing part of it is the community of hikers that while it's virtual, I feel so connected to all these people who've hiked the trail through my art. And that's been the best gift of, from it completely for me. It's interesting how people have found ways to connect more virtually, basically, finding new communities to connect with even. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I don't think it's the same as being in person, but I don't know. I 
with Instagram and social media, I used to have a really negative outlook on it. And I've obviously dived full in in terms of doing my art. You kind of have to. I mean, it's the best way to market yourself and reach people. But beyond that, like, you know, like even just painting the black relation, then he ended up being in Bend, Oregon, and I got to meet him. But I feel like once COVID is over, like so many of those experiences will happen, especially people that I've painted, I do form like a real personal connection with them. And it will be really cool to see like our paths align in the future. It'll be interesting to see how that all happens. Yeah, I mean, assuming the world doesn't end, but... No, I do, of course, but it, it does feel a little apocalyptic just walking around yeah. everyone in masks and obviously the tension of the elections. Yeah, it is. It is very much so. <laughs> um, going circling back to when we were talking about fears, you know, and there's there's the general fears of, you know, being a solo woman on the trail, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there are also very specific fears and you kind of alluded to it a little bit in terms of fears of other humans or what Mm -hmm. other humans could do, particularly from the perspective of a petite woman. Yeah. Um, Because unfortunately that you're very vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, you know, just again, to be totally transparent on the Appalachian trail, like I've had multiple times people try to non-consensually touch me in my sleep. Um, I wouldn't like put it in the box of like sexual assault, but you know, just situations, one in a shelter and one in like a motel with a lot of people sharing a room where, you know, I'm waking up and someone's trying to put their arm around me in my sleep or cuddle up to me and people that, you know, know very firmly that I have no romantic interest in them. And it's nothing that's ever escalated, but it's not just this imaginary threat in my head either. Right. Well, and I think that that's a big thing is that it's not imaginary. You know what I mean? That that it's not your imagination creating these things um, or these situations and somehow, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Somehow blowing it out of proportion or something like that. Like it's, it's things that, that happen. Yeah. Uh, no, I, it's just interesting uh, in terms of the the familiarity people can assume. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing has been like navigating in between like, what is this internalized fear that to some degree is irrational that I've gotten from my mom and my grandma, while also what is, yeah, what is real and what precautions do I need to take and what kind of boundaries do I need to set to make sure bad things don't happen. Did you find yourself establishing those boundaries, setting those boundaries and getting more, I guess, comfortable in that over the course of the three, four years of hiking that you've done? Yeah, I think it's, it's still kind of hard for me because I'm the kind of person I'm so unfiltered. It's really hard for me to be anything but fully myself, I'm very friendly, very talkative. I want to get to know people. I want to ask them questions. And obviously that can be misconstrued or misinterpreted. Um, and I guess in a weird way, I'd rather just be fully myself and sometimes have to deal with awkward situations than feel like I have to put up this like 
bitch face so that no one confronts me in a romantic way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's obviously easier with your with your boyfriend around and particularly since you're hiking with him. <laughs> yes, definitely. He makes it really easy. And when I was on the AT, since we met in the beginning and hiked the first thousand miles together, most of the people that met me later on, they knew that I'd met my significant other on the trail. They knew about him. He came back and would do trail magic. So people knew I was taken, I guess. Right, right. Huh. What made you decide to do the Israeli or Israel National Trail? Yeah, so I'm half Jewish, so I've always kind of had an interest in Israel. And I'd gone to Israel um, a few years prior, and I was just really curious about that. Do you know what Birthright is? Mm-mm. So it's a free subsidized trip to Israel where anyone who can you know, say they have Jewish heritage and go completely for free. And some people will say that it's propaganda and promoting Israel, um, which I'm not going to get into all the politics of it, but it definitely <laughs> um, is a very one-sided view of that country. And so for me, I wanted to go back and explore it through my own lens. And when I found out that there was a trail that was modeled after the Appalachian Trail, I was like, okay, this is the perfect excuse to go back there. And I had seen on National Geographic, it was ranked top 10 hikes in the world. And at the time, I was very much living my life of, okay, work, next trail. So this just seemed like the obvious next trail after the Appalachian Trail for me. How was it similar to the AT? How was it different from the AT? It honestly was not similar at all. (laughs) I mean, it was a trail that spanned the length of a country. Um, I only ended up doing the desert section of it because I was just kind of over it. By the time I finished the desert section and I heard that was the highlight, uh, the main difference is that there's no natural water sources on the whole trail. So you either have to carry your water or pay someone to bury it in the desert and give you the coordinates of where it's buried. And we had one of our caches stolen in the beginning, so we decided just to carry all our water, which is a huge undertaking on top of all camping gear to carry three days' worth of water. Was that about how often you were coming into civilization, so to speak? Yeah, three days generally, which you know, isn't that bad, but just because you have to carry all that water, it's really heavy. And to get off trail to resupply, you have to take a whole nother trail usually. So there's so much time spent resupplying that's not even technically on the trail. And I also found that it wasn't as well marked. LNT was not really a thing there. And there was like no other people. We were expecting to meet lots of Israelis, which we did through, um, there was tons of trail angels, like an amazing network of trail angels there. Oh, really? which was like, yeah, which was like the highlight of the experience. Like every single town, there would just be these giant list of trail angels. Half of them didn't even speak any English, but they were the most hospitable people I've ever met in my life. Like we would ask them where the supermarket was to resupply and they'd be like, oh, just take things from the fridge. <laughs> so that was really unique. And Honestly, just learning a lot more about Judaism. Like, my mom's Jewish, my dad's from Colombia, but I wasn't raised religious. Like, I don't identify as being religious. I know a bit about Judaism, but especially in the south of that trail, most of the trail angels were Orthodox Jews. So that's like a whole different culture. And observing Shabbat 
And during Shabbat, they don't use any technology. They're not allowed to do anything that's considered work. So even something as simple as flicking the light switches on, they don't do that. They put timers on their light switches. So it's it's pretty extreme. And all public transit is shut down during Shabbat every week from Friday to Saturday. So you have to plan your resupplies around that as well. So were you planning when you would go into town or coming off of trail basically around that? Yeah, because everything would be shut down. You wouldn't be able to go into a store and buy food. And because everyone's home with their families during that time, you can't even hitch into town generally. How did you find the trail angels? Yeah, so there was a list online. And they would just have their phone numbers. And when we would get close to town, we would, you know, I got a Israeli phone there and just send them a message. I ended up having to use a lot of Google Translate because a lot of them didn't speak any English, which was really fascinating. I don't speak any Hebrew. My boyfriend knows a little bit. He He's Jewish, culturally, not religiously, and had gone to Hebrew school. So we had some, like, basic phrases down, but... Yeah, it was definitely really different, but really magnificent. Just like the history of Israel, we got really lucky. We got to partake in an archaeological dig um, at one of the national parks. We met a bunch of archaeologists from the United States, and they ended up inviting us, which, you know, that was actually because they had a bunch of bitch work they didn't want to do, but it was so an amazing experience unearthing these, like, 2,000-year-old date seeds that had been perfectly preserved at this old copper mine because of um, the climate there and how arid the desert is, things just don't decompose. So you guys discovered some stuff or found some stuff within the bitch work that you were doing, which was probably seen sand or rock or what have you. We found tons of stuff. I mean, every sample that we were sifting through was tons of date seeds. So, you know, that's from people at this copper mine site over 2000 years ago, eating dates at the work site and the seeds that they left behind there. We would find pieces of fish or chicken bone from their food. One of the coolest things that I ended up keeping was this knot, like a piece of fabric made of goat hair that was still intact. Oh, I think I saw that. I think I saw the the picture on uh, Yeah, I'm wearing a mask, which, you know, obviously now is pertinent. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that was really cool, and I ended up bringing some of those pieces they told me I could take a few things I didn't just steal them but I ended up bringing them back and putting them in epoxy resin and making some jewelry out of the date seeds and the goat hair knot so it's pretty cool souvenir but yeah I mean just the history of Israel again it's such an old country that you're finding and coming across things that you just don't get in the United States yeah there's not the same length of history shall we say (laughs) exactly what was your takeaway is probably the wrong word, but, but like, what is your enduring memory of the INT? Mm, probably the last mountain, Mount Carbolet, which is when I decided that I didn't want to do this anymore. I'm very scared of heights and on the Israel National Trail, depending on how much rain they get and how wet the season is there's certain areas that will be filled with giant pools of water and going up this mountain it was incredibly steep and treacherous and a lot of places on the trail they'll have some rebar infrastructure um, through the canyons and through some of the really steep mountains Um, but this mountain in particular had these giant pools of water um, as you went up on this terribly steep grade 
and having to circumvent that um, and take many leaps of faith. And then once you got to the top, it's just like this huge slope that you're walking on for miles. And when I finally got down from that mountain, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Which is funny because I'd gained so much confidence on the Appalachian Trail because, you know, even going up Katahdin, as someone who's scared of heights, I found it, like, very rigorous and challenging. Um, but these sandy, steep slopes in Israel and through these canyons were, like, nothing I had experienced before. And even my boyfriend, who's incredibly adventurous and not easily scared, he was like, yeah, this is a hell of a climb. <laughs> this is a little sketch. Yeah, and no one had talked about it, because when I did, you know, a decent amount of research about this Israel trail, and there wasn't tons of information online, but no one had talked about this mountain or anything. But I don't think that many people, especially Americans, have done the trail, and most of the resources about it are in Hebrew. Which would definitely slow slow people down in their research. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How far did you guys get? Well, everything was in kilometers back then. <laughs> now I don't remember, but I think we did like 200 miles. We did like half of it. We did almost the okay. whole desert section. What, I mean, I know that you guys didn't hike it, but what would the other section have been like? Cause the pictures I've seen of the desert section, it's, well, very deserty. It's very sand. Yeah. It's very barren. Well, the other sections, I think you go pretty close to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and you, and near the Golan Heights, I think. Um, okay. It is more verdant, but again, you're just way more in civilization, which didn't really appeal to me at all. The desert section is somewhat remote, so that's why. And I had met, you know, other people coming southbound and just other people, trail angels who had done it, and everyone was like, the desert is the highlight. And at that point, I think I was just kind of over being in Israel, too. It was really hard navigating everything through Shabbat. Things were really expensive there, especially the kind of food you would want to bring on trail. Like unless you're just eating like the fresh like carrots and vegetables and hummus, like the prepared like um, like preservative food was quite expensive. And so on an impulse, actually, my boyfriend and I, we were trying to get back to the trail after staying with the trail angel. And we took a bus and told the bus driver where we needed to get back on. And the bus driver just kept going down the desert road and didn't drop us off. And, you know, we're like yelling from the back, hey, like we wanted to get off here, this, that. And eventually we just got off at the next stop in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing there besides um, a little like bus stop. And we went over there and there was a cardboard sign on the ground that had in Hebrew the name of the Dead Sea. And I just picked up the sign. And within one minute, as I turned the sign around, someone pulled over and gave us a lift to the Dead Sea. And it was just a really spontaneous moment. Because like I said, I had a, I wasn't even sure I was trying to hitchhike. I had just picked up the sign. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Going to the Dead Sea sounds lovely right now. And then once we were at the Dead Sea and we're kind of further from the trail, I just was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. And we had met a trail angel at the beginning of the Israel National Trail who had traveled the whole world. It was an older couple. And she said her favorite place she had traveled was Romania. So for whatever reason, that stuck with me and I booked a flight to Romania. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a very impulsive yes woman. So that's just how someone tells me someplace is cool. You know, next thing you know, I'm booking a flight there. 
but that's allowed you to see some pretty incredible things too. Yeah. I mean, and the flight to Romania was like $60. So it just made sense. <laughs> when you guys showed up at the Dead Sea yeah. and you've got all of the, the sunbathers and the, the, the beach goers and you guys are showing up in your, with your packs. Oh my God. Like you have the exact image in mind. That's so funny. You bring that out. Cause that's exactly what it looked like. <laughs> Did you get some strange looks? I mean, honestly, no. But when I look back at that picture, because I have a photo of us with our packs and our poles in the air, and then in the back you can see all these people, yeah, sunbathing in the Dead Sea and Taurus. It, it is very out of place. And that's probably, like, the tannest and darkest I've ever been. Like, we just look, like, dirty and dusty. Um, but it, it was a really cool experience just, yeah, saying fuck it and going to the Dead Sea. And honestly... <laughs> I think that what probably fed into why I allowed myself to stop hiking on the PCT, because obviously having gone back to the AT in 2017 from square one and having this really purist ideology around through hiking, letting go of that on the Israel National Trail and just being like, you know what, I'm not having a good time anymore. I'm allowed to just stop and the experience can be what it was. And I think if I hadn't done that in Israel, it would have been really hard for me to let go on the PCT. Well, and actually, that brings up a really interesting conversation, I think, you know, in terms of the purist who, you know, you have to hike from mile zero to mile 2000, you know, whatever, in a direct line. And get out of the car on the right side that you got off it to begin with. Exactly. <laughs> and you, go and you need to go out the same trail. You need to go out the same trail that you went into the shelter, and, yeah. you know. There, there can be some, some religiousness about it, mm -hmm. so to speak. Where did you discover, determine, you know, because on the, the AT you finished it, and I'm assuming that there were, there, there were some rough days potentially, mm -hmm. that for the most part you were in it, it was good, it was, it was a fun, type two fun experience. Yeah. But then being, but as you say, you were a purist. So when you, step away from that and you step into the uh, Israel National Trail, determine you're not having fun, determine you want to be someplace else, doing something else. Like, what is that conversation like in your head? Mm -hmm. Well, I think on the Israel Trail, we had let go of the purest thing, uh, like, before that, because the water situation was so rough, carrying so much water, and there got points at the end of our resupply where... I felt like we didn't have enough water and that gave me so much anxiety. There weren't other people out there. So it wasn't like, oh, worst case scenario, I can ask someone else for some of their water. And because of that, we ended up like on the app we were using to navigate. We saw that there was a bike path that basically was following the same route, but more directly. And so we started occasionally taking that bike path in order to cut off a few miles so that we could feel more confident in our water supply. And for me, like the stakes felt obviously a lot higher in Israel because of this whole water situation. Like, I don't want to get dehydrated and have heat stroke in the desert. Like, that's not something I'm fooling around with. But I think with such like a long trail, like the Appalachian Trail, I think the purest ideology, like, of course, everyone hike your own hike. Um, but I think psychologically, it would be really hard for me to have that big of an undertaking and not be pretty purist about it. Because once you're willing to give in and skip a few miles here and there, it's such a slippery slope. Oh, definitely. 
once you once you say yes to one thing, it's easier to say yes to the next one. Exactly. And on the AT, you know, I hiked, you know, with a lot of other people just for a few days here and there. And I would have people try and tempt me. I was hiking with a group of girls for a bit. We called ourselves the Pussy Posse, <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, which was really fun because that was an experience I had never had, like backpacking with a group of females. But yeah, I had a close friend in the group and she kept being like, oh, let's just go to town and hitch from here and constantly trying to tempt me. And of course that's tempting, but after you've hiked, you know, over a thousand miles, purists is really hard to let go of that. And of course I'm glad I didn't because, you know, I went back to square one after having already hiked 1200 miles of it. Like I was not messing around on the AT. But I think that purist ideology is both like really psychologically healthy in terms of completing this giant goal. But I think it can also be problematic in terms of people policing other people's hikes and a lot of judgment, which, you know, I have been really judgmental about it in the past because it's really hard because it's like, what does it mean to be a through hiker? And like, everyone draws that line in the sand somewhere else. But at a certain point, if people who hiked, let's say only a thousand miles of the trail and they say they're a through hiker, but they were just jumping around and getting drunk and, you know, what we call yellow blazing, then what does the title mean? So it's just finding that balance because obviously I do believe in this bigger idiom of hike your own hike. But at the same time, I think through hiking is a crazy cool accomplishment that in order for it to mean something, we do need to draw a line somewhere. So where's the, what's the line that you've drawn? (laughs) I think for me on like a large trail of over, you know, 2000 miles, I think if someone skipped 10, you know, 20 miles, like I don't have an exact number in mind, but if someone skipped some small amount. <laughs> oh, because, come on. I need exactness here. <laughs> if someone skipped some small amount and there's a real reason or there was a, of course, obviously if there's a trail closure, but for example, on the AT, the second time, I'm probably missing three miles because I got stung by a bee and I'm very allergic and my whole ankle swole, swelled up and I ended up hitching out of town and was not able to get a ride back to where I'd gotten off because I got off at this really random road. And I'm not going to beat myself up about those three miles. But if it had been 50 miles, I'd probably go back and do it. (laughs) But, you know, it's like with the PCT. I never say that I'm a through hiker of it. I said I hiked 1,800 miles of it, which is a lot of a trail, but I'm definitely not a through hiker. When you're on the PCT and in a heavy, heavy snowboard, <sighs> yep. when did you make the decision that you were going to flip-flop? I had made that decision as soon as I knew it was a hard snow year in my mind, but my partner had not. Uh, <laughs> he was very much like, if we can go through, he wanted to go through, and mm-hmm. he was very much you know, in love with the idea of a linear through hike because he he completed the whole Appalachian Trail, but as a flip-flop um, in two different sections. So he really wanted to hike through. But as soon as I heard that in order to go through, I would probably need an ice axe. I was like, I'm probably good. <laughs> I'll flip. I mean, like I said, I'm very scared of heights. I'm not into snow travel. And I just knew that the anxiety and fear that it would cause for me would outweigh the overall benefit and where I saw like the risk in terms of like my life was just like again yeah just like not something I wanted to take the chance with that I'm not a mountaineer and obviously people did go through who didn't have Mm -hmm. that skill set and they were fine but 
you know, people have also died on the PCT and the Sierras in high snow years. And for me, my cost benefit analysis ultimately told me that I wanted to avoid the snow as much as I could. Did you get into Kennedy Meadows? So we got off at mile like 700. I'm blanking on the name of it. Okay. It's, it's the stop right before Kennedy Meadows, like the resupply stop before. Okay. Um, but it's like mile almost exactly 700. And then you flipped up to the border, right? So we took three weeks off to still wait for snow to melt because at that time Washington was still covered in snow. And then we drove up the PCH, yeah, and went south from, yeah, the Washington border. So we got on at Hearts Pass, and, you know, you do that section twice if you're going down. Um, Which, honestly, if you're going to do a section twice, that's probably one of the best ones because it's absolutely stunning, and we had amazing weather, and it was just one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And, yeah, so then we went southbound until Alali Lake in Oregon and my boyfriend really wanted to go to PCT trail days. We had had a lot of fun at AT trail days and for whatever reason we always end up winning things with those raffles. So I think he was enticed by that and he was totally right because I also won a pack again at that. I've won a pack at both trail days and then from there we decided that at the pace we were going southbound like we would not hit the Sierras at a good time and we really wanted to do that section. So then we flipped back where we had gotten off and went like near Kennedy Meadows and went north um, up until almost like Truckee. And then that's when I impulsively. Hey, Aaron. Hey. Okay, perfect. We are recording again. And um, as I kind of said last time, or at the end of last time, we you had gotten up to Truckee. So you got through the Sierras, you were up to Truckee, and then we ended on a cliffhanger. Yeah, so the cliffhanger was, yeah, I just woke up very cold for the millionth night in a row, and everything was frozen and frosty, and, you know, I couldn't even drink any water when I woke up, because all our water was frozen, and at this point, I was just like, I'm not having fun, and, you know, we still thought we were going to push on, we had done the math, and we're like, okay, we could still get up to Olali Lake in Oregon if we average, you know, 20-something a day, um, up into November, which seemed like it would be feasible. Yeah, but that's very late in the season. But we heard it was possible. But at that point, there was no one really around us. And it was definitely lonely. And as I mentioned, very cold. And it's it's funny, because the day I left at the road crossing, which was it wasn't exactly at Truckee, it was just kind of a random little mountain dirt road before that. And when I got to that road, we were going to dry out our tent that just had a lot of condensation. And a lot of our stuff had just gotten wet and there was no good place to even hang it up. It was violently windy. And there was a little sign right by the road um, in like this really bright bubble letters that said, keep going. And I don't know why to me it was like ironic. It was like, you know what? I'm not going to keep going. I don't want to. And it was just so funny of all places that that sign was there. And maybe some people would have seen it as an omen to keep going. But to me, I think the fact that that sign was there and I was still like, you know what, I'm just done is pretty interesting. But yeah, from there, there was just this couple with their really young, like two year old daughter. And for me, like, because, you know, we're just kind of in the middle of nowhere on this little dirt road. I didn't want to overtly be like, hey, can you give us a ride? So instead, I was just like, oh, do you know if this road goes to Truckee? Like, we're hiking the PCT. We're trying to see, like, if um, 
like how we could get into town, but like didn't overtly ask them to give us a ride. And they were like, oh, we're not sure something. And they just continued on with their little hike with their two-year-old. And you could tell that they then were kind of thinking about it. And then they came back like five minutes later and offered us a ride to town. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) And while while they were on their hike and I was just sitting there at this road crossing, I was already Googling um, the price of flights from Reno back home. So I knew I was pretty serious. It's sort of like that that bubble sign was one last check-in. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to think of it. It's just so random because that's the only place I've ever seen a sign like that on the trail. The universe works in mysterious ways. Yeah, it does. But as soon as we were on the road and like I knew I was out of there, I knew it was the right decision and pushing on for another, you know, three weeks to a month into November um just would not have been fun and it just wasn't worth it and you know we can always go back and complete that section but it was also really hard because we had done you know what everyone had said was the highlights like of course people say the trinity alps are really beautiful too but the main highlights are washington and the sierra as far as i know so it wasn't like there was this one last thing that i really wanted to see on the pct (laughs) (laughs) When, when did you start the trail we started the trail April 22nd. Okay. And then you had to hold off for three weeks while Washington yeah. cleared out. And then, yeah, I mean, that, that puts you on the trail late. And then, yeah, we late, got late back on the, the trail July 2nd going southbound. Right. And then you jump back down and then you, yeah. Yeah, very convoluted, but I don't know. I mean even though I enjoy so much the community of the trail, it was cool to feel like, you know, my partner and I, we were just out there and it was just us. And especially in the desert section, like when we went back to that section right before um, Kennedy met, Oh, I remember Walker pass. That's where we had gotten off. So from Walker pass to Kennedy meadows, we didn't see a single other person. And there was something kind of magical about it. And it was so hot. It was like over a hundred every day. And, it was pretty fun because sometimes I would just like hike topless. I was like, well, I felt pretty confident after day two that no one was going to show up and no one was around there. <laughs> um, so just kind of having that freedom and, you know, it was, it was like naked and afraid or something. <laughs> what would your mother have said? Oh, she's used to it now. After I went and spent some time on a commie and I don't think I can surprise her with a <laughs> I mean, also, like, all the art I was creating prior sure. was mostly nude art, a lot of self-portrait. So I don't think I'm shocking anyone anymore. <laughs> but there is there is definitely, as you say, a, a freedom to to being able to do it, to feeling confident in doing it. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, on the PC, I mean, this is just, like, a minor detail, but, like, on the PCT on the desert, because it's so open when there are a lot of people around, it's actually, like, challenging. Like, if you have to pee or something, I mean... Obviously, you get way less shy about that kind of thing on trail, but it's kind of annoying because it's so open. People can just see you for see you for like expanses of space, and so and there's no like trees to hide behind. Whatever is going on? <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't no, know if it's, it's my end. It could very well be my end as well. So I mean, it, it's it's so interesting that we're having these issues, these digital issues, because I think back to my conversation with Dara and talking about the digital divide within the indigenous community. Mm, I haven't listened to that one yet. I need to listen to it. But it just, 
like we take the connectivity so for granted that we get so annoyed. I know myself included get so annoyed when it drops on us or when it doesn't live up to our expectation. You know what I mean? We've gotten to that level of it just is a given that we have it. Definitely. Sorry. So I digress. (laughs) No, you're totally fine. Um, Going back to the trail and how crowded the desert section is and how uh, difficult it is to find a little privacy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so to speak. Yeah. Did, did you evolve to uh, getting to a point where you just didn't care or? Yeah. I mean, for me, like I don't care. I'll pee in front of people all the time because it's just like, I'm not gonna, (laughs) that's just what trail life is. I mean, on like the Appalachian Trail, you have like these comically small privies where everyone's like sitting at the picnic table near the shelter and they just like see your head popping up above the privy. Like that's just like part of trail life. But it is nice, like, after, because the desert was kind of crowded. So when we went back and did that section from Walker Pass to Candy Meadows, it, it was nice to feel so free and to feel so confident that we weren't going to see anyone for, you know, multiple days. And, yeah, I mean, on the Israel Trail, we had that a bit, but it was cool, like, in the U.S. to have that. Well, I, I would also think, though, because you're flip-flopping a little bit. Mm-hmm. That a lot of it. A lot of it. <laughs> that you're traveling on the trail within yourself, like within the couple of you versus within big bubbles of hikers, particularly which as you started going Sobo. Sorry, say that one more time. I I would think that like that, that freedom of it just being the two of you, Mm. as soon as you started to, as soon as you jumped up to Washington and, and that kind of thing was probably more, uh, prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. There, there weren't too many people, like there were a lot of people when we first started going southbound, but it thinned out like really quick. Like in Washington, we camped just us two alone almost every single night. And that wasn't like intentional. Like, again, like I'm all about the community of the trail. Like I like camping with people and talking to them and hearing their life stories. But yeah, that's just kind of how it unfolded that it was just us two. It was pretty nice. Huh? Yeah, I mean, especially again with like peeing, it's like I can just pee wherever. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's honestly part of my consideration, like on the PCT. It's just like nice not having to think about that. Mm-hmm. You're so, out there by yourself. Yeah, I think it's really ironic that I keep talking about peeing and then, you know, I just designed a pee cloth. <laughs> <laughs> seems to be a theme emerging. <laughs> it, it seems to be important. Yeah, I mean, on the trail, I'm just trying to be hydrated, so. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what was your, or what has become your favorite piece of gear out there? Hmm. That's a good question. My favorite piece of gear. Probably my dual sleeping bag. Um, I run extremely cold, and I'm just a very cold in terms of temperature kind of person. <laughs> and so... When I was hiking the AT, I used to write this trail blog and a friend from my mom's college who she hadn't kept up with in over 20 years randomly, I guess, saw that my mom was sharing my trail blog and he was a big hiker himself. And he just said, you know, when you finish the trail, I want to get you a gift up to like $500. And this is a guy who didn't know me. He hadn't been in contact with my mom since college. And 
I didn't know exactly what I wanted, but then I had somehow heard about these dual sleeping bags. And I was like, wow, this sounds like an amazing way to steal my boyfriend's warmth throughout the night. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of bulky. It's not very UL. I mean, I don't generally carry Mm -hmm. it, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) it's definitely my favorite piece of gear. It's just like really nice to be able to cuddle and be in just like one giant sleeping bag rather than two. Sharing body heat, particularly as you go through the the Sierras (laughs) in the cold. Exactly. I would definitely recommend it for any couples. Like I know some sleeping bags you can zip together, but I mean, obviously it's a commitment to mm-hmm. sleeping next to each other always. Right. To, not separate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Did you guys <laughs> share any other equipment? Yeah. I mean, everything. everything. We had one stove, one tent. Yeah. I always joke to people if they want to go ultra light without spending money, they just need to find a partner. <laughs> and ideally carry them <laughs> that's the trick to it all right there yeah i mean it's way cheaper than spending five thousand dollars on ultra light gear so and again tell me again the 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 uh bag that you guys got so i'm i'm not a gear person so i don't <laughs> know like the exact name of it but it's um a north face i think it's called like the dual comforter perhaps okay <laughs> But but it is specifically a dual, so it's it's a big. It's yeah, it's giant. Like it will take up like half of my boyfriend's um, like sixty liter Osprey bag. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. What was the piece of gear that you dropped first on the AT? Mm, like, what was it? That just... many. And did you replace it with a regular size? Yeah, I did. I'm trying to think. There were some other things that I got rid of. I mean, really just minimizing the amount of clothes I had. Oh, I got rid of my bra first thing on the AT for sure. I was like, don't need that. (laughs) (laughs) And then people tried to change my trail name to Knit. So, you know, maybe that wasn't the best idea. (laughs) But But you stuck with Abstract. Yeah, so... The first time on the AT in 2015, my trail name was Swole, um, which at the time was like a joke because at the beginning, again, I run really cold. So when I was alone, I would do a ton of really ill-formed push-ups in order to maintain body heat. And I joked to a friend at a shelter, I was like, oh, well, you know, you got to stay swole, which just means like you got to stay buff. And then unfortunately, <laughs> that stuck. And, you know, my real name's Alina. So people would call me Swolina. <laughs> um, but I never identified with it because, again, I'm a pretty small, not buff girl. And my push-ups, like I said, were very ill-formed. So I didn't really resonate with it. And then when I went back in 2017, it was very much, okay, I'm ready for a new trail name. And I was doing just these blind contours, they're called, which is a drawing exercise where you draw people without looking at the page. So I would just stare at someone's face and have my pen or pencil moving along the page trying to draw them and of course they would end up pretty abstract and funky and at the time I was also you know in my real life not on trail trying to pursue abstract art so that was super fitting and I liked I think I like to ask you know deeper philosophical questions so it could be abstract in that sense as well and then that just stuck and I decided to keep that on the PCT. It's a good one. And now it works because now it's my life and career is being exactly. a track hiker artist. So what do you, what do you think like on the trail? What do you think one of your biggest aha moments was for you? Mm. 
my biggest aha. I mean, I definitely think about food a lot. I don't know if that's an aha moment. I think <laughs> that's a you or not. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I went to the trail like a lot of people because you have all these big life existential questions. And, you know, I talked about it a bit on the She Explores podcast, but you end up just thinking about pizza and ice cream so much. But I, I think beyond that, the other big takeaways for me were this drive for community and bigger picture, just thinking about, and a lot of this came after the trail reflecting as well of like my obsession with the trail and what that was really about. And I think for me, the trail provides this linear sense of purpose that once you get out of this school system of, you know, especially if you go to college and this and that, you know, some people go into grad school, it's like, you don't have this linear purpose. Like when I got out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do professionally, like a lot of people. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're 22 years old and the trail is something that you can really cling to that gives purpose. It's a linear, linear trajectory through a certain space. And there's really nothing like that where you're just walking in this one goal for six months it's really hard to replicate that in other places. And like, even if you just want to go travel, let's say you want to go to Southeast Asia, it's just, then you have to do all this research and find where you want to go. There's not this trajectory that's already set. And I think that feeling is something a lot of through hikers love and want to replicate. And that's why they keep hiking more trails because it's really hard to find purpose and meaning in life. And especially now, there's so many options. And with the internet, there's so many options, which is an amazing thing. But I think a lot of people like myself have analysis paralysis and don't know where to start. And then it becomes a little abstract? Yeah, so then it becomes abstract, and then you say, fuck it, and hike another trail. (laughs) But I think, yeah, going back to the community, too. I mean, the trail, the people who end up hiking the trail are generally very open-minded, kind people. And Again, it's hard to find and replicate that community in other facets of life. Yeah. Well, and I also hear from a lot of people, like the community that's around the trails, the community of hikers on the trail, Mm -hmm. you tend to have or can tend to have very deep conversations. You tend to sort of skip the bullshit a lot. And that's probably pretty refreshing. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think there is still a lot of bullshit in terms of like gear talk and weather talk or how many miles you do in today talk. But I still think, yeah, the majority of people, you can get that past that really quick. And at the end of the day, I think most people do have a bigger existential reason of why they're out there. I don't like, of course, like a lot of people, it's just like, oh, it's just fun. It's a physical challenge. But from my experience, I would say, especially on the AT, there's another layer of, you know, grief or people overcoming addiction or PTSD. Like they're not everyone, but Mm -hmm. there's a huge subset of that. And people trying to work through that by walking. Yeah. Walking is a nice space. It's very therapeutic. Yeah. Even when it's painful walking. Yeah. It's just unfortunately, it's like, I think a lot of hikers still then have that then what? After the trail. Yeah. Yep. I mean, do you think you have like a bigger existential reason of why you want to hike the trail? Um, I sort of did at the beginning of the summer, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, absolutely. It seems only fair, right? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I I think basically I had gotten to a point where I needed to make a change, and and I also turned fifty this year, or turned okay. fifty this year. Uh, I had a friend who died a year, mm. almost two years ago now, and it was sort of like it all kind of came together into this questioning. You know, I'm fifty now. <laughs> what do I want to do when I grow up? Um, <laughs> What were you doing prior, if you don't mind me asking? Basically, what I'm doing prior, what I was doing prior, is still the same thing that I want to do, but I want to do it at a more. I don't even know how to describe it. So basically, Ooh. basically, what I did before, what I do is I manage, produce uh, films and TV series. Okay. And. But I've very much been stuck in the logistics or, and I've, and I shouldn't say stuck. I should say I've stuck myself (laughs) in the, in the logistics, the technical side of things. Um, Mm. and not, and just accepted that that was where my space was. Um, I came up through accounting and that kind of thing. And so it's sort of this natural little fit. And I think I started to realize in the last couple of years that that there is a creative soul in me somewhere. <laughs> um, and I wanted to explore that more. And so getting out onto the trail was an opportunity to sort of, in some respects, cut the cord to the just the logic, uh, the logistical, the technical, the managing side of mm. things and try to create a new foundation with the creative um, as well as the logistical and sort of try to marry those things together um, and and get into things that are that are more producing on a bigger picture scale and so that was kind of part of the goal of, of going out there was to help kind of create that that cutting of the cord so to speak do you think the podcast is doing that for you in some respects yeah Actually, interestingly well, enough, I do. In so I feel much like the as, podcast has almost become your trail. It has. It has. Very much so. And and just the idea of going out, just the idea of cutting the cord because I was going to be on the trail created a change as well. Mm. Because I, I cut off from what I would have done, could have done into a new, onto a new path. And it's interesting how that has manifested over the last, the COVID months with just different projects and, and actually pushing forward and trying to get those projects out there and having a greater appreciation of the skills that I bring to the table and what I can do. And also, you know, just in terms of what I want to do, you know, I don't know if you've gotten to the point yet, but there's certainly a point in time, particularly when you've been doing things for a while, where it just becomes repetition. Like you just, you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it. And it's, it's a challenge to look outside of that and see if there's anything else that you would like to do or that is of interest because you've been doing this for so long. You put so much time and effort into doing it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I would say that was through hiking, and art has now been the new thing. Nice. 
Yeah, which is funny because it's funny to think of through hiking as your comfort zone. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of strange. Yeah, but I, but I, and I I guess kind of goes back to what you were talking about before, where you know you're you're constantly the people who are hiking are constantly looking for that next hike. Mm. You know, there isn't a there's an addictive factor to it. I think. Which is a pretty good thing to be addicted to if you're going to be addicted to something. True, true. I wish I could always be in through hiker shape. <laughs> and, and be able whatever. to eat anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really is the all-you-can-eat diet. And there's not many of those out there. No, there's really not. I mean, I just, I would love just doing a 20-mile day, getting to town, eating a whole pint of ice cream, and it's just like, okay, what am I eating next? <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. I went on a hike with um, a friend from the PCT the other day here in Philadelphia. And, you know, we just went on like a smaller day hike, but he still had all the through hiker gear with him, you know, the hyperlight pack. And I just like noticed in the mesh of his bag, he had a couple honey buns. And I just thought it was the like funniest, cutest thing ever. It's like, you know, the through hiker spirit doesn't die easily. <laughs> Even when you're only going out to walk five or 10 miles. Yeah, yeah we hiked like seven miles. I was like, I don't think you need two honey buns, but who am I to say? <laughs> I don't know. Honey buns seem to be pretty important. I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty, a pretty health conscious. Like, yes, I still eat a lot of ice cream on the trail and off trail. But, you know, I do think it matters what you eat on trail. Like some people say, you know, if you turn the oven up high enough, anything will burn. And I think there's some truth to that. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess like for me, I also just didn't want to develop certain dietary patterns on trail that would not serve me off trail. Yeah, that would be difficult to get rid of. Yes. I mean, honestly, the food is a huge part of why I don't want to do more long trails like at this moment in time, because it's just so much processed food and it's really hard on my body. Do you feel the difference on your body? I did. I mean, I definitely felt like I would have like stomach problems on the trail from eating all the processed stuff and dehydrated food. It's just you can only carry so much fresh, fresh stuff. And because like I was trying to eat very nutritiously dense food and all those bars, I just think it's a lot. Did your diet adjust or change over the course of the trails? Yeah, I mean, before the PCT, I was working from home. So I did a ton of dehydrating and tried to be really health conscious and do it in an economical way. But yeah, for the full like six months before the PCT, I was just dehydrating and dehydrating. And like, I kind of felt bad because I was in an apartment building and I feel like the aroma of like the raw garlic I was dehydrating was like filling the whole apartment (laughs) building. But (laughs) I think garlic's like a really great health food and you know, it's been shown to have all sorts of antibiotic properties. So even now with COVID, I try to eat garlic every day. You, uh, I feel like garlic scares bugs away. Yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> and bugs love me. So that's another added. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, with the PCT, I would say that was also like the big beyond the snow. The only other time I considered quitting was because of the mosquitoes in Washington. They were so bad just swarming I felt like I couldn't think they were that bad at some point because of the the numbers because of the buzzing because of mm-hmm. and just trying to do simple things like set up a tent and they're just attacking and you're just slapping every part of your body uh, 
I don't know. It, it really started to emotionally get to me more than anything else on trail. And I think my partner felt the same way. And we're like, why are we spending our life savings on this rather than the beach in Southeast Asia again? And that was just kind of this ongoing joke because we both really want to travel to Southeast Asia. And we just keep end up picking through hiking as our adventure. I think, again, because of that linear sense of purpose rather than just, you know, traveling to travel. And whenever it got really, really tough for, you know, high winds and we're getting knocked over on a mountaintop, we would just like yell to each other, why are we here instead of the beach or why are we eating Pad Thai? <laughs> that, become, that became the uh, ongoing however many month conversation? Yeah, exactly. But again, I think it just comes down to the purpose that the trail provides, even though it is in some ways arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Like, Obviously, I think there's value or I wouldn't have done it, but like there is an inherent futility to just walking for six months. <laughs> the destination is not necessarily the the clearly defined destination. Say that again? The <laughs> destination may not be the most clearly defined destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, on the trail, it kind of is, though. I mean, it's Katahdin or Canada, but it is kind of arbitrary in its own right. But, but I guess if you want to go metaphysical here for a second, <laughs> sure, take a metaphysical it. journey with me for a second. Um, if you think, yes, I mean, that is the, that is the most defined destination. I'm going from this monument to that monument. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the, from the next monument to the next monument. But I would hypothesize that really what your destination is, is the things that, that you find out about yourself through the journey of following that line. Mm. Yeah, no, I would agree with that for sure. I guess at a certain point, I guess the question is like for me as someone who spent so much time hiking, it's like at what point, like, of course there's always more room for growth and more things to learn about yourself. But is there a point where you do kind of spiritually plateau on trail and you've thought through your whole life and evaluated everything from every angle in your mind. I don't know. I guess for me, it started to feel like I had done that on the PCT and that's why I did ultimately get off and am taking a break from through hiking and pursuing my art. And I don't know. It's been an interesting journey. (laughs) But you've, and you found some way to, you pursue your art and you found some way to, pull in your experience of hiking and pull in your ability to, because of your experience with through hiking, your ability to listen to people's stories and interpret them based on the understanding you have of what that is. Yeah. I mean, like it feels like obviously at this moment in time and life is constantly evolving. Like I said, I never anticipated doing art full time, but it almost feels like my trail journey ultimately was leading me here to the hiker art. And all those experiences feed into and allow me to express myself artistically because in most cases, especially when I'm painting something for through hikers, I've literally been there. I've done the journey and I think hopefully, and you know, people say it does, but that shows through my art in a way that I'd imagine an artist who hasn't had those experiences couldn't do perhaps. Right. You, you capture the essence of it as well as the physical of it. Yeah, I hope so. That's at least what I'm striving to do. I, I think you, you've done a pretty good job of it. 
But yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe in 10 years, it will all lead to something completely different. I would bet on it, but <laughs> that's just me. Yeah, I would bet it bet on it too. I mean, even just with the art, you know, it started off as just like these quirky little designs and now it's a custom art and I don't know what that next step is going to be, but it's, it's been really interesting because I think, you know, especially coming from a family that's not into hiking and camping and they gave me kind of a hard time about this. And I think some people are lucky where they come from outdoorsy families who already see the inherent value in through hiking and they're like, that's amazing. Like do it. And like, if, you know, you call your family during a hard day. They're like, you got this. But like when I would call my mom, you know, crying, so I was having a hard day and it was raining. She's like, just come home. Like she <laughs> didn't see that bigger picture. And like now that I'm doing the art and having, you know, some professional success with that, she's like, oh, like this is so cool. Like, you know, your through hikes were all leading to this and that. But at the time, you know, I definitely think, especially when I went back to do the AT again, there was a lot of backlash. It's like, wait, but you already did that or you did enough of it. But now I feel like, you know, people in my family can finally see how it's all come full circle and how it was a part of me and feeding into who I am in a way I don't think they saw when I was just hiking. Nice. Yeah. But I mean, that may also feed into like the bigger existential ideas around <laughs> capitalism and productivity. And now I have this tangible thing I'm producing. Yeah. You could go really far down the rabbit hole. With this, but. That would be, that would be a rabbit hole to explore on the next hike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should? I don't know. I feel like you've covered a lot. I don't know. Did you have any other things you wanted to cover? I don't think so. So, okay. yeah, no, I think I think I've I've covered all of my notes, really. Yeah, I didn't have any notes for this one. Like I said, I I used to really just like public speaking. And obviously, this isn't even public speaking, but I'm definitely feeling more relaxed. Nice. Perfect. That is that is the goal. Sorry about the technological hiccups. Yeah, that's the joy of editing. I was like the font. Like, I feel like when I do this kind of thing, I'm like so in the moment that I almost like black out to what I said. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I listen to it, it's like listening to anyone's podcast. I'm like, mm -hmm. Oh, I don't remember saying any of that. Perfect. That sounds sort of familiar. Yeah. Do you feel that way too? Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> actually I've, there are usually a few key moments that I remember, but, but in going back and editing it, I'm like, Oh my God, I forgot that we talked about that. <sighs> I forgot that we went so deep into that. Yeah. So you, you're you still planning on doing the trail next year, right? I'm still planning on doing the trail. 99.9% .9 sure it will not be next year. Okay. Just because you've delved into other projects at this point? or Because I've delved into other projects, because it's been a COVID year this year, the bank account is a little, mm. a little tighter. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is that I've, through this COVID, through not being on the trail, I've really pushed into these other areas of creating and getting in touch with that and trying to get projects going. And you're doing it. I mean, this podcast seems like you've already had like major success pretty quick. Well, this is this was sort of the starting point. It's it's funny okay. how this as a starting point has affected other things. And I think a big piece of it, interestingly enough, is like when I first started this, I was very nervous about getting it out there and did I have anything to say and 
mm. wanting to have to be that um, visible, so mm. to speak. And yeah, it's really vulnerable. Say it again. It's really vulnerable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And through this process, I have it's allowed me to embrace that, which is, I think, a big thing that has then when I shifted over to the creative stuff has allowed me to embrace that and embrace pushing that forward. Mm. Interesting. How long has it been that you've been doing the podcast? Um, We just released episode 92 this week. So it's going to be about two years in December. Oh, it's been two years. Wow. Yeah. I definitely want to listen to your most recent one. It sounds really interesting about the digital divide. Uh, that is uh, Dara. So that is not that is the one before the last. Okay. Yeah, because I, I studied sociology and actually wrote my thesis on the digital divide, on especially in terms of usage while like controlling for different racial groups. And it's a huge interest to me. So Dara is right up your alley. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yes. Well, we're not quite done yet. So where can people find you if they want to follow your continuing adventures and or get some cool art? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, probably the easiest is Instagram, which is at abstract.hikes. And then my website is throughdesigns.com. Those would probably be the best places. And you can also shoot me an email at throughdesigner.com at gmail.com nice okay perfect well we'll get that out there awesome yeah i am taking commissions right now but probably not too many more because it's getting pretty crazy for the holidays (laughs) i'm sure these are like the perfect gift yeah right i know i'm really curious to see how it all plays out because i've only been doing this now for five months so i have no idea what the holiday season will look like and I guess the final question for you before I, oh before I let you go is <laughs> when you think back on the trails, on the the three trails that you that you've set your feet on, mm-hmm. what is the enduring sort of image or impression that you have that, that it leaves you with? It's hmm. a good question. I mean, each trail is so different. But I think just in general, an image of myself as self-reliant which is this idea of self-reliance has been something that's been really important to me since I was young and especially as a woman and when I think about myself on all three trails even though you know a large part of them I've done with a partner I still very much just see myself as self-reliant and I think that's a really important thing that anyone could gain from hiking one of these long trails. And links for Alina's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Alina for sharing her stories from the trail and Maya Wynn for the use of the song Try Again. On next week's episode, Constantine is back with his partner Magpie to talk about their 2023 hike of the Great Divide Trail. I'm so excited to talk to them about their shared experiences of the trail. 
And I hope that this conversation, these conversations, inspire you to get out there and have a few hiker trash moments of your own. I'll see you on the trail.